Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. The land of the rising sun, a culture rich in traditions that date back many centuries. And it's here in Tokyo, Japan, that the National Hockey League breaks with tradition. NHL history was made on October 3rd, 1997, as the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim and Vancouver Canucks faced off in Tokyo, Japan, and the league's first regular season game played outside of North America. The, the pros were going to play at the Olympics, and that was the whole concept to try to introduce the NHL and the game of hockey to Japan prior to the Olympics in Nagano in 1998. A pair of future Hall of Famers powered Vancouver. Babbage from the point right in front of Kevin Nash, the rebound, go the rebound. Mark Messier scored in his first game with the Canucks. Good one time to score! While Pavel Bure supplied the eventual game winner and a 3-2 victory. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, now, isn't that a fine kettle of fish? Let's get into this, shall we? How you doing, uh, friends? My name is Tim Hanlon. Probably know that by now. And you also probably know by now because you're listening to this show. It's called Good Seats Still Available. What is it? Well, glad you asked. If you're a first timer to this, it's, uh, it's what we like to think is our little curious journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports, thank you for coming by. Whether it's your first time or your uh, return visit uh, or whatever, uh, thanks for coming. And uh, we uh, we start the episode with a curiosity uh, in that clip that you just heard, and perhaps a little bit of misdirection. Uh, certainly, perhaps uh, on a cursory listen, uh, you may then believe now that the NHL's first ever game in Japan occurred in 1997, as just mentioned, October 3rd, 1997, from the aforementioned or between the aforementioned Anaheim Mighty Ducks and the Vancouver Canucks in Tokyo. It was done as a prelude to the uh, 1998 Winter Olympic Games in Nagano. Uh, and uh, it's when the uh, the pros were uh, finally unleashed into the uh, to the hockey tournament uh, in that in that Olympics. And uh, what better way? to get the uh, Japanese uh, uh, citizens uh, uh, aware and uh, a little bit uh, cognizant of how the top league in the world played the game of hockey. But uh, as our guest this week, our return guest this week, Steve Courier, he of episode number 37 fame back in November 2017 when we talked about his great tome devoted to the California Golden Seals, rest in peace, of the... uh, of the NHL, uh, we talk about the actual first game, actually games played by the NHL in Japan. Long forgotten, but not uh, not this week. <laughs> and that's why we're here. As we talk about something called the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup. That was the official name of it. It was basically an NHL uh, series of games, exhibitions. Uh, four of them, as a matter of fact, played between April 14th and, and 18th of 1976, between, wait for it, 
two, the two worst teams in the league in uh, ni- uh, in the season 1975-76. Those being the relatively new second-year teams, they. Washington Capitals, who uh, joined the league, as you know, uh, in uh, 1974-75, along with the uh, now New Jersey Devils, but then known as the second-year Kansas City Scouts. And yes, you want to check that episode that we did with Troy Treasure a couple of years back to kind of get a little uh, insight into the Kansas City Scouts two-year sojourn. But here we are. Uh, We're talking about a four-game contested exhibition cup between the two worst teams in the NHL before the damn season was even over in 1976 as uh, as a goodwill gesture, I guess, of sorts. And we're going to find out the whys, the hows, uh, all of it. Um, It's a fascinating little asterisk in pro hockey history. And a lot of it is centered in, well, the origin story really is of of expansion of the NHL's, is it ham-handed? Is it, it was a little too much too late? Um, You know, begun in 1967, the great expansion, the six teams, and talked about that with the Golden Seals, et cetera. Um, but by 1974, the NHL was uh, just, they couldn't print, they couldn't uh, mint them fast enough, I guess, these new franchises. And it was Washington, D.C.'s and Kansas City's turn uh, to join the uh, the cavalcade of new franchises that the league was rolling out every year. And it was even worse because it was also the time when the World Hockey Association was getting going. 1974 was, uh, I guess, if you were a pro hockey fan. An embarrassment of riches because you had the NHL uh, arguably rolling out two quite wobbly teams. The the talent pool was certainly draining at that time. And this fledgling World Hockey Association with its own cadre of teams, I think it was 12, uh, further diluting. But but and in some markets, you had uh, competing teams um, and it was the uh, the ultimate uh, expansionary uh, excess, I guess. A professional hockey at the time. And I w- we know how the whole story sort of ended over time, the eventual quote-unquote merger, at least absorption of some WHA teams by the end of the decade. But what an interesting and fascinating time to be a pro hockey fan uh, in 1974, 75, and 76. That's where the story begins. But the punctuation uh, is these four games that were played in uh, two games in Sapporo, where the uh, 72 Winter Olympics were played, of course, as we know, and two games played in Tokyo, where you may remember the 1964 outdoor summer games were played. And uh, it's just fascinating uh, 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 discussion, fascinating uh, uh, reasons and rationale for this uh, this exhibition series, why it took so long, maybe, uh, from 1976 until 1997 to go back to Japan. Uh, and Lord knows there were plenty of reasons as to why to go back. There was an actual cup uh, contested for, and we talk about where that cup actually lives today. Hint, hint, uh, the team that won this little series actually still exists today. Um, but it's really, really interesting stuff. If you're interested in the uh, uh, the NHL expansion mindset in the early 70s, uh, the effects that the WHA was bringing to the table, um, the lamentable first two seasons of both these Washington Capitals that still exist today and the Kansas City Scouts, which you know, of course, have uh, morphed into after a couple of different cups of coffee, today's New Jersey Devils, um, you will understand and uh, appreciate and just find utterly fascinating as I did 
Uh, this story about what was known as the Coca-Cola Cup in 1976, it's a story of all of those things and more. And the book, Get It Now, it uh, came out about a week or two, about two weeks ago uh, by our guest this week, Steve Curry. It was called When the NHL Invaded Japan, the Washington Capitals, the Kansas City Scouts, and the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup. It's a hoot, the book. It's a hoot, the conversation. And it's a hoot and of an episode. Uh, coming right up in just a few moments' time. Quick promotional announcement, however, before we get there. How about celebrating some of the great moments in forgotten sports history by going to our pals at royalretros.com. Royalretros.com, all one word, the, the king of throwbacks. And um, it's our pal Dustin Alameda in beautiful Portland, Oregon. And... Um, Amazing stuff. It's been a few weeks since we've uh, kind of highlighted them, but uh, just uh, if you're looking for great throwback uh, uh, garb, uh, clothing, uh, uh, shirts for sure, but jerseys and stuff too, hats, apparel, all kinds of great stuff. Amazing collection from various leagues of the past. Um, certainly lots of different uh, uh, cities both in the United States and internationally. But there is a wonderful hockey section that you must check out in commemoration of this episode at royalretros.com. Just go especially to the other hockey section, and you will be greeted by uh, just a, a beautiful assortment of uh, Hartford and New England Whalers stuff. How about a hoodie? Uh, the, the authentic Hartford Whalers jersey. How about those California Golden Seals or the Oakland Seals or the California Seals or whatever they were called uh, in commemoration of our previous episode with Steve? Uh, some uh, th these gorgeous, I, they're not, it's not even light green. It's sort of a, a, a melange of, of light green and sort of aqua blue. Uh, T-shirts, hoodies, uh, the California Golden Seals jerseys and in a couple of different sort of uh, Colors. There's the, the green and yellow, which was sort of the Charlie Finley, uh, Oakland A's kind of uh, dynamic. There is the sort of a teal green with a white and yellow trim kind of thing. There's the full yellow jersey uh, that the Seals had. All kinds of great sort of uh, versions of that. And many, many, uh, or much, much more. The Kansas City Scouts jersey, uh, worth getting for sure. Uh, a couple of different versions of that. Uh, why don't you amaze your friends? Uh, with that, or perhaps a T-shirt um, commemorating the uh, the the long forgotten two year uh, sojourn of the Kansas City Scouts, and much much more. There's the Oakland Seals version out there. There's a, if you're a big Colorado Avalanche fan, uh, you can get the Quebec Nordiques jersey to uh, show all your smart friends that, uh, or maybe convince them that you were a fan of the team in one of its previous previous uh, iterations. All kinds of great stuff, and you're going to love it all. I guarantee you at royalretros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. And that's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, -S, SEATS is the promo code. 10% off all of your purchases when you go there early and often to royalretros.com, the king of throwbacks. Thanks, Dustin, for your support of our show. And hopefully you fans out there will enjoy the uh, great wares that uh, are available for you there. And God forbid we get a few shekels of referral love by doing by uh, having you go to the go to the site and checking them out and buying a few items. We appreciate that. All right, we also appreciate you listening further uh, to this uh, fun-filled conversation. Here it comes with our pal Steve Curry. It's been five years. 
and uh, what an excuse to bring him back. Let's talk about the Coca-Cola Cup. Let's talk about the Washington Capitals and their stinking first two years. And let's talk about the long forgotten but um, soft spot in our hearts, Kansas City Scouts. Here it comes. Please, as always, enjoy. For our audience who uh, did not have the pleasure of listening to uh, our previous episode with you a number of years back uh, about the uh, California Golden Seals and that uh, tome of a book, um, maybe a little background on you, a little bit about that book, um, your adjunct to uh, hockey history, like why uh, the pursuit. And I'm assuming um, or guessing, frankly, that the Golden Seals depth that you did in that book and continue to do with your blog and Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff, uh, maybe became the uh, essential tangent to the story that we're going to get into today. Yeah, there's a bit of um, uh, a bit of a link between the the two the two books. I guess uh, uh, I, I've always been interested in reading about uh, reading and writing about um, uh, defunct teams and and leagues. I mean, this is <laughs> this, this is really my wheelhouse. This this uh, podcast of yours. This is. Um, exactly the kind of thing that I've always been inter- interested in, uh, especially on the hockey side. That's always been my my passion. And um, I mean, the, the book on the California Seals was uh, something that I'd always been passionate about since I was a, a kid, just seeing the old uniforms in uh, in old magazines and on hockey cards. And it just um, kind of went from there. I, I, I wrote to the NHL as a, as, a, as a boy, maybe I was about 10 or 11 years old, and I asked them to send me some information on the Seals. This is before the internet even existed. So someone at the league office sent me um, a, a media guide, I think from 74, 75. And they, they sent me the, the entire media guide uh, photocopied. And that was kind of the basis. I had all the the seals history right in front of me. So it kind of made it um, a good starting point. And I think that's why I went in that direction more than if, if they sent me a media guide on the Kansas city scouts, I probably would have gone that direction to, to be quite honest, but it was, I guess it was kind of fate that they, I was put into this uh, California seals history. Like, like I was, and that's that's how it kind of went from there. As as far as the the scouts and the um, the, the capitals are concerned, in, uh, in my my new book on their uh, their trip to Japan in 1976, um, this kind of goes again in my passion for reading about hockey history. And I remember in um, when I was doing research for the seals, I was buying old hockey news issues from the the 70s um, through the mail, and uh, I I'd, I'd gotten a couple from in 1976, right around April or May, and there's a few articles that mentioned that the scouts and the capitals had gone to Japan to play uh, a four game exhibition series. And there wasn't really a lot more out there um, to, to find any more information, but it, it just, it was also an idea that I had in the back of my mind. It's like, that sounds like a very interesting, uh, interesting experience. And uh, so it was also the back of my mind that whenever the, the book on the seals was done, that I'd like to go back into this area and, and look at the scouts and the capitals and their, their two first years, which were horrible. And what led to them going to Japan? Um, so I wrote an article for the Society for International Hockey Research back in 2013, I think it was, um, where I kind of got to interview a few of the players and hear some interesting stories. And I thought, like, oh man, like this is it has so many great stories and experiences. And I was like, how can I turn this into a book? Um, I suppose just a, a three or four thousand word article. And uh, so I just kind of thought about it, and I said, well, if I go back to the beginning, the expansion draft, and I go through the, the two years that led up to them going to the Coca-Cola Cup. Um, 
uh, series in Japan. And I thought, well, this I could actually turn into a book, I think. And um, fortunately, the McFarlane Press was um, was interested in it, and they, uh, they 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 took it right away. So I was um, that's kind of how I, I got into this uh, this story right here. Well, remind me, you didn't grow up in the Bay Area. What was the fascination with the seals in the first place? Oh no, I'm I'm uh, I grew up in uh, Cornwall, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I currently live in Ottawa, which is about a, um, an hour, an hour and a half uh, north of Cornwall. Uh, and uh, no, it really had absolutely nothing to do with um, me growing up anywhere near the, the Bay Area. It was just a, a morbid fascination with failure, I think is what it was. Uh, I grew up a Montreal Canadiens fan, so I was used to seeing teams win all the time. And uh, I don't know, I, I just find that a lot of teams like the Canadians or even the, like the Boston Bruins or uh, uh, in other sports like the New York Yankees and uh, other great teams, there's, it's the same stories over and over again that you keep seeing. There's, there's really not more, not much more. I don't think I could even uh, research in, in these teams, even though I love my Canadians, uh, despite their failures this past year. But, uh, but with the seals, there was, there was just nothing that was really available. It was, it was such a ripe, um, territory to uh, to explore there was really nothing and, and the scouts is the same thing there's really not a lot out there there's more now than there were uh, 10 or 20 years ago but uh, for the seals that was really the, the fascination was the fact that there really was nothing out there and everything that i was researching it seemed like it was it had never been found before or at least very very little of it had been found before yeah, and and that's you know uh, our sort of perverse little logic of, of focusing on on these kinds of things. We, yeah, similar fascination, different roots, different sort of uh, interests, right? But um, you know, it, it, to me, it's fascinating that you know at, at top tier professional levels and occasionally on the minor league levels too, um, that certain franchises and teams and situations and even tournaments or whatever existed and then don't and. Um, sometimes they're remembered for various reasons or they get incorporated or, or uh, scooped up and, and, and integrated into whatever sort of follows thereafter. Uh, but frankly, more often than not, they don't. And, um, but they were real, uh, especially in, you know, from the sixties onward, there's probably video or, or audio or both, um, that prove their existence. But, you know, why not? What happened? What went wrong? Why couldn't it come back again? Where does that history live and all that kind of stuff? And so, okay, so stumbling into this story, I, the, the, this book is, um, is, is really great. Your, your, your SEALs book was, was fantastic as well, of course. It's in-depth. It's probably the most, uh, the most in-depth resource you're going to find, um, probably along with uh, Mark Gretschmel's uh, uh, documentary uh, on the same topic, right? You're probably a completist after watching and reading both of those, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, okay, but, and and yes, arguably the Golden Seals or whatever whatever year you want to, you know, were they Oakland or were they, whatever, um, that's somewhat obscure enough, although that was, you know, pretty mainstream, multiple seasons, all that stuff. Now, this is taking it to another level and then some, right? Um but I'm fascinated by how you sort of approach this book because really the first half of it um, is not about this uh, long forgotten exhibition series in 1976 played in Japan of all places, but the lead up to it, which is just as important and frankly um, equally as fascinating, which I guess I could best characterize as uh, a, a, a backgrounder and or a commentary, running commentary on the expansion process that the NHL was doing in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, it was, 
like the expansion drafts, the, 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 uh, by this point in 74, this is when the, the scouts and the, and the capitals joined the NHL uh, officially. Uh, they'd already done three expansion drafts before. And, you know, they, they've been relatively successful, like uh, especially the first expansion draft. It was fairly generous to the new teams compared to what would come afterwards. Um, the, the and, and just to remind our audience, those teams, the process was this was the league that had been only six teams up until 1967. And are all of a sudden discovered that uh, they should start expanding for various reasons and then continue in a drip, drip, drip process thereafter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. In in 70, in, in 67, when they uh, there was only the, the original six, which, of course, would be Montreal, Toronto, Boston, Chicago, Detroit and New York Rangers. And then you know, these were all, of course, like Eastern based teams and no Midwest for Chicago. But um, th- there was really nothing else that was um that had been explored really i mean they had a brief little foray into st louis at one point in the 30s but there really wasn't much west of that and it was such a ripe territory for uh it, it was it was ready for expansion and and other sports had, had already done it and baseball and, and football had already gone west and it had worked out very well so the nhl finally very slowly after much convincing and um, uh, they, they finally decided that, yes, we're going to add some teams uh, going west, going as far as California. Um, and uh, it, it started the process very slowly that way. And then when those teams, for the most part, in the first three years, they were relatively successful. The Seals would be an example of one that wasn't. Pittsburgh was a bit wonky, but they, they they managed to survive. And then the other four teams were were relatively successful. Um, they were drawing good crowds and uh, they were icing competitive teams. So the league decided to expand again to Vancouver and to Buffalo. And uh, Vancouver had been rejected in '67, but they were always on the NHL's mind to uh, to come back because um, it was a it was a good market for hockey, obviously. And and I think in the '67 expansion, um, a lot of Canadians were upset that. You know, they didn't add one Canadian team like this is our national sport. And they they went for teams in California before they did uh, Vancouver. So they, they finally expanded to Vancouver uh, and, and Buffalo. And those t- teams did very well from the from the, the start. They, they drew good crowds and um, uh, Buffalo is very competitive, um, just maybe two or three years down the road. Uh, then they added teams, the NHL added teams into um, Atlanta and uh, Long Island. And they, they had kind of up and down success. Uh, the New York Islanders didn't start off very well, but they, they drew good crowds at least. And it was a good market for hockey. Like New York could support two teams, obviously. And uh, Atlanta drew good crowds at the beginning as well. And they were actually relatively successful on the ice. They made the playoffs their second year and they made the playoffs most other years afterwards. Um, so th- everything had, had gone fairly well with expansion in the NHL, although it did dilute the sport quite a bit. Uh, by yeah, I'm sorry, and you you were even sort of saying in in the narrative of your book that you know that that Atlanta and New York Islanders expansion maybe was maybe the most visible sign that there are some sort of seams that are sort of tearing perhaps yeah. at this process, and 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 you think it was dilution of talent largely that was sort of rearing was- the ugly head. Well, there was definitely dilution of talent. If you look at the expansion draft, the players that were selected were, you know, it's compared to the six, seven draft, there was definitely a drop off in talent. But that said, um, 72, it wasn't so much a dilution in the NHL, because I think the NHL would have been all right if that had been the only factor was talent for the NHL to support 16 or 18 teams, they probably would have been okay. The 
the, the, the major um, problem was the World Hockey Association coming in in 72 and adding 12 teams of their own. So all of a sudden you went from having 14 teams uh, in 71 to having, uh, well, they had 16, they had 28 teams in 1972. Uh, you're, you're doubling the number of players at the major league level. So this is where the problems start coming in. Like the New York Islanders lost a great deal of talent. Uh, like all, most of the players they drafted, there was maybe seven or eight players, I guess, that signed with the World Hockey Association before they even played one game in New York. So the Islanders were terrible their first year. Uh, because they, they had really nothing. The, the best players they had drafted were gone before they even played a single game. Atlanta was relatively spared. They didn't lose too many players. Um, but you look at teams like the, like the Seals, for example, they were decimated by the World Hockey Association. Um, they, they didn't have the roster to be able to to weather that kind of storm, as opposed to the Boston Bruins, who lost some major talent, but they had enough depth that they could weather the storm. The Montreal Canadiens was the same thing. They lost some talent too, but they, they could weather the storm easily. But the Seals and the Islanders, that who were already pretty weak, uh, weak rosters, especially the Islanders, when the WHA came in, that was really um, a major disaster for those teams. And the NHL, around the same time, decided to expand to Kansas City and Washington for to start in 74. This is already a bad sign that with the 72-73 season, the, the dilution of talent in the NHL and, and the WHA, in 74, it wasn't getting any better. And that's where, um, unfortunately, they, the NHL made these plans thinking that, well, by, by 74, the WHA will probably be gone. They're not going to survive or they're not going to be a major threat. Turns out they were. And... When the scouts and capitals came into the league in 74, the expansion draft was uh, – the talent level was very, very shallow. Like there was almost nothing available for, for – one team maybe could have done fairly well. But for two teams, it, it just wasn't enough talent to go around. And by, the, and by this point, the WHA was also adding two more teams to bring the overall total to 32 teams in 1974. So you think 32 teams in 74, there's 32 teams in the NHL today. The only difference is that today, Europe is open for business. You have Sweden, Swedes and Finns and Russians and Czechs coming over to the NHL to, to, to bolster the talent level. But in the 70s, there were no Russians. There were no Czechs, a few Swedes and a couple of Finns. Not a lot of American players either. either. Compared to now, Americans are everywhere in the NHL. But in 74, there just wasn't that. It was pretty much Canada was supplying all the talent and there just wasn't enough at this point. So if you're a fan at this time though, it's gotta be sort of an embarrassment of riches though. Um, but I'm sure the quality of play maybe disappointed you, but I don't know as a fan, it means to have maybe even two, two franchises competing in the same market. Um, that just seems like a, a, a heaven maybe. In, in some cases it would, it would have been nice um to have that choice between two teams. Like if you're in Minnesota, for example, and you had the Fighting Saints and the North Stars um, competing for, uh, for for fans, it's, it's great that you have that choice. But in the end, just about every market that had competing franchises, one of them failed. And usually it was the WHA. Like the Minnesota franchises, the Fighting Saints ended up dying. Uh, when you had New York, you had the New York Raiders and you had the New York Islanders, the Raiders died after a year. They moved to New Jersey, and then again, they couldn't survive. They were they were so close to Philadelphia and the, the Rangers that uh, the, the Raiders or the New Jersey Knights weren't going to survive. Uh, you look at in L.A., the Sharks in the WHA, the Kings in the NHL, 
the sharks ended up dying after two years. So there was, it, it, it was nice to have those, that competition in, in, in these cities, in the major markets. But um, the reality was like hockey wasn't popular enough to support two franchises, especially in a place like Los Angeles where the Kings were just getting off the ground. They barely had enough fans to survive themselves. Having a second team come in was, you know, the, the Kings were definitely going to have the, the leg up. They've, they'd been around longer and they were, um, um, no, um, I guess a more interesting team to follow. Um, so the, the WHA teams that competed with the NHL ended up failing uh, in just about every market, if not every market they tried. Um, their greatest successes were in markets that didn't have any franchises. Well, by 72 and 74, those two rounds of expansion of the NHL, uh, I, it, my sense is that the NHL sort of recognized that this WHA thing was real, going to launch, and maybe this expansion process that had begun in earnest in 67 and had been supplemented a couple of times was kind of almost a defensive move for the NHL and a bet, as you hinted at before, that the WHA wouldn't last long. Yet it seems like in the near term, it had the opposite effect of just further diluting the pool available of quality players. Yeah, the uh, the the quality of players you can see really goes down, and and it, I even I, I talk about a little bit in the book uh, after the seventy four seventy five season. So that would that'd be Washington Kansas's first year. This is the this is the year they had the thirty two teams across both leagues. You notice at the end of that season that just about every team in the NHL set a new record for offense because the talent. Whenever there's lots of expansion you notice a rise in goals. There's uh, the 10 nothing blowouts and the 11-1 blowouts, not so much now, but back in, the, in, in those days, they were everywhere. So when you saw expansion, offense would skyrocket. But it, it, created, for, it created very sloppy hockey at the same time. Like it was, uh, there, there was no defense. There was, uh, um, it, it was very sloppy is, is what it was. And it, despite all the goals, uh, you also had the rise in... Um, in goons in hockey because there just wasn't enough talent going around. So you had these guys that were playing on the fourth line who a couple years earlier never would have played in the NHL, but all of a sudden the world hockey association comes along and these guys suddenly are good enough to at least get their foot in the door and, and play professional hockey in, uh, in that league. And in some, in some cases they played in the NHL as well. They weren't great players, but they needed bodies and um that's what it, it created a rise in in violence and goonism in in, in hockey but uh, also a rise in in scoring and it it was it was like it was like air um like 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 an air hockey table like um i, I read in one book that i used um uh called the hockey compendium and they talk about that it's, it's like the age of air hockey is what it is it um it it was in a way it was exciting and interesting but in other ways it was very diluted and it um People at the time, fans were almost not upset, but they were disappointed that the game that they remembered from the 60s and the 50s, that was very pure and you had nothing but the very best players competing against each other. By the, se- the mid-70s, you had a lot of guys that were there that really didn't belong. Well, so explain the 1974 season, because the Capitals and the Scouts were these two teams that ultimately played in what we're going to ultimately get to, this 1976 Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup in Japan, an exhibition series. But the the reasons why these two franchises were the ones to go into that is, is really important. And, and maybe set up the backdrop, because I, I think I saw either you say or quote somebody or said, or, or maybe you mutually said this in, in, in the book, that 
arguably or perhaps maybe inarguably, 1974-75 season perhaps may have been maybe the lowest point in the quality of play in the modern game of the NHL because of this dilution and imbalance and other things that the expansion had wrought at that time. Yeah, like if if you look at the um, if you look at the stats for the the Capitals, especially it's 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 kind of frightening when you look at it. I mean, you think I think they scored something 182 goals for the season, so it's, they average a little over two goals a game, but they gave up 446 goals, which is an average of like five or five and a half goals a game or something. So like, th- there's never been a team that's even been close to that mark since then, and you look at the uh, the game summaries and you can see them in the, in the book or you can find them on, uh, on hockeyreference.com and those places. But the, the Capitals gave up 10 or more goals seven times during that season. And if you look at the NHL of today, I think maybe once a year you see a 10 goal game. And this is throughout the entire league. They, the Capitals had seven games. They gave up 10 or more goals. And I think Kansas City was maybe once or twice. They gave up 10 goals. Um, and that's not counting the eight, one and nine, two blowouts that, um, Washington was getting left, right, and center. But you also had teams like Detroit was, at, um, was an awful team at the time. Uh, the Seals were having a hard time as well. Um, and the, the Scouts were moderately competitive their first year, but they still weren't great. Like they were, they were still prone to the occasional blowout. Um, it, it was a bit of a low point, um, or at least the starting of a low point, because the rest of the 70s weren't necessarily much, much better. There was a great imbalance of of talent like you had montreal and philadelphia at the at the very top and at the bottom you had kansas city and washington that had absolutely no chance of making the playoffs um not to mention a team like detroit or minnesota or california um like they had they had no chance of making the playoffs pretty much from the first week you knew they were done um and i'm sorry there's a there's a great you have a great section point in your book i think it's page 78 um, when you're talking about the state of the Capitals by February of 75, the, yeah. the middle of their first season. So the Capitals, they were 4, 45, and 5 <laughs> on February 11, yeah. 1975. Putting, that put them 179th among 179 last teams in operation that season, which included not just the big sports like Major League Baseball, the NFL, uh, the NBA and the NHL, but also the ABA, the WFL, <laughs> the WHA, the North American Soccer League, and World Team Tennis, and then yeah. and then even that you even make a reference to the expansion New Orleans Jazz of the NBA, which had just won seven, mm-hmm. I think, of its fifty-one games. And there's a, just a, an amazing quote here you have from yeah. <laughs> UPI sports editor Milton Richmond. Do you remember it? Do you want me to tell you? Oh, you can see I have the book in front of me right now, but yeah. I, I know which one you're talking about. It's a great it's, one, yeah. Well, it suggested that but since both the Jazz and the Caps end their seasons the same day in the nation's capital, that perhaps they should stay over one day and play each other in some neutral game like tennis or baseball to decide which is truly the worst. <laughs> um, so this was this was this this Capitals franchise halfway through its first season was woeful by multiple league standards, not just the NHL. Oh yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I, I forget where I found that that quote about uh, being 179th, but I thought that, that it's shocking when you think like, I mean, someone has to finish last, obviously, uh, but they were like leaps and bounds last in across every league. Um, like they, it, it was it was a, a, a very very difficult first season for those uh, for those guys in the capital. I spoke to many of them uh, for the book, and uh, no, ju- just great guys um, that. Um, 
you know, they, they, they just happen to get saddled with this, this horrible team. And, um, there's a lot of circumstances that explain why they were so bad that first year, you know, their, their draft picks didn't pan out as well, or they, they, they kind of rushed their draft picks into, uh, the NHL, Greg Jolly, the, um, defenseman who's picked first overall in the, in the, the draft, they were touting him as being the next Bobby Orr, which was, you know, unfair for any young defenseman. They're expecting him to lead the team to glory. It's like, well, he's a 19 year old kid. He, he wasn't ready to, to be the number one defenseman on this team. He needed some time in the minors, but they rushed him. And same with Mike Marson, who was picked in the uh, first overall in the second uh, round. He, he also was rushed to the NHL. And he, he was a, a kid with lots of talent, lots of skill, but they, they rushed him way too fast. Like he should have been sent to the minors to, to develop his skills and then come up to the Capitals and contribute. But there was way too much pressure on those two guys at such a young age to perform. Um, there wasn't the leadership on the team to really um, help those guys along. And uh, um, like, like I was saying, like this was a team that, was historically bad. They, uh, um, I have some of the stats in front of me. Just what, what's shocking is the, the goaltending. Um, there, there are two goaltenders. Uh, Ron Lowe faced an average of th- over 37 shots per game. And their backup goalie, Michel uh, Bellumar, faced almost 39 shots per game. Like that, those are ridiculously high numbers. And, but that's what it was in Washington. Every, every night was, it was a shooting gallery. They, they had almost no chance of winning. And if they even came up with a tie or even they came, I think um, one of the players had said something along the lines of, uh, they tried to keep it down to a touchdown. So if they, they keep the game down to about a touchdown. They they they'd done a good job, but that that's really not a very positive thing to be thinking about. Like uh, they just weren't very competitive that first year. Um, they had um, losing streaks. They had a 17 game losing streak, and th- this is no ties. This is 17 straight losses. They had 11, 14, and. 17 game winless streaks during the season as well. So um, when you think they won only four games past the halfway mark of the season, you can see why that, um, why this team was historically bad. Um, it, it was, it was tough for, for these guys. They won only one game on the road all year in California at the very, very end of the season uh, where the players at the end of the game, they, uh, they went back to the dressing room and uh, one of the players, um, I forget who, because there's a, uh, everyone says it's someone different, but uh, they, they found a green plastic garbage can in the, uh, in the dressing room back at the Oakland Coliseum and they, they all signed their names on it and then they went back onto the ice and they prayed the, the, the garbage can around like it was the Stanley Cup because um, that, that was their, their high water mark was winning one game on the road in Oakland of all places. Um, and the following season when they went back, uh, that garbage can was still at the Oakland Coliseum. When they went back to visit the, to play the Seals again, that garbage can was still in the visitor's dressing room and all their names were signed on it. Uh, I don't know what happened to that, that uh, garbage can, but it, uh, it, it does have some historical significance, but it's probably lost the sands of time now or it could be still in Oakland somewhere for all we know. <laughs> All right. Well, but um, I'm barely keeping them um, uh, uh, afloat, so to speak, I guess, by comparison. Kansas City scouts weren't burning, burning up the ice either. Now, were they? No, they were they were more competitive um, by expansion standards. Like they, they finished 15, 54 and 11, which was, you know, not, not great. But uh, like the games were fairly close. They, they had a, a pretty tight defense. So the, uh, they didn't have a great offense, but the, they, they didn't let the, they didn't run the scores too often. Um, cause they were, they had a, a, a responsible defensive crew and 
it, it also shows a little bit the different philosophies of the two teams in the expansion draft. Um, Kansas City tended to go for more veteran players. Uh, and you can see in the book, it says exactly um, uh, how many points, how many games these players had played before they were drafted. You can see that Kansas City went for more veterans, like um, players like Gary Crotto, who'd played for uh, for Oakland for for four or five years. Uh, they had all other guys like Simon uh, Nolet, who played for Philadelphia. He was one of their um, uh, their better players, one of the better players in, in the draft. Um, so they had some guys who could contribute offensively, and and uh, they had some responsible defensive players also. Uh, that was that made a big difference. Washington, on the other hand, they they went for more players that had minor league credentials, players that they thought maybe, well, because they had good numbers in the American League, maybe that will transfer to the NHL. Turned out that wasn't the case. So they, they ended up suffering um, badly. There's a couple of guys that had good seasons, like Denny Dupere um, um, was, a, was a good pick. Um, Jack Eagers was a, a, a risky pick, but he had some credentials, but he ended up missing most of the first two seasons he played and didn't contribute too much. Uh, he had injury problems. Um, but, but Kansas City, yeah, they were much more competitive and they and their, their general manager, Sid Abel, who's a Hall of Famer from uh, the Red Wings, um, he made a couple of really good trades during the year. He he traded um, a couple of players who really weren't working out um, with the, the scouts. He traded them to Detroit for a guy named Guy Charon. And uh, Charon was a was in the, the Montreal organization. He went to Detroit, had a couple of decent seasons, but when the 74-75 season started, he wasn't really doing very well. I think he had one goal in his first 25 games or something. So the, the scouts managed to get him for a, a pretty – uh, decent price. They didn't give up too much to get him. Well, when he showed up in Kansas City, all of a sudden he started scoring again. And for two, for a year and a half, two years, he was their best player by far. Uh, Washington didn't have anyone of his caliber. Um, they also traded uh, Michel Plas, who was their number one goaltender from the expansion draft, traded him to Pittsburgh for a guy by the name of Dennis Heron, who um, was a young goaltender in Pittsburgh, but turned out to be a very, very good goaltender. He was extremely uh, competent as a number one in Kansas City and kept the team in many, many games. So they were lucky. They made a couple of really good trades that um, uh, turned out very well for them. And and the players that got in the expansion draft, some of them actually did, like uh, Simon Nolet, for example, led the team in scoring. Uh, Wilf Pema, who was drafted second overall in the amateur draft, had a 26-goal season. So he he contributed a lot more than the Washington uh, draft picks ended up contributing. And it made a big, big difference. Like just those little contributions. Um, you know, there was no superstars in the team, but they were fairly competitive and they were they were a much tighter um, defensive team than than Washington was. But these two franchises, after a year or two, were <clears throat> were basically not only on the ice – uh, challenged, shall we say? But they were, they were, they were wobbly, right? Both as franchises, I, certainly Kansas City. The rumors of they're never going to last too long in Kansas City, despite a new, brand new Kemper Arena at the time, uh, were already sort of fairly rampant. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the same was sort of being whispered about Washington. Although maybe A. Pollen was quicker to quash those, given his new facility and, and what he was doing with the bullets and all that stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The uh, the, the scouts um, drew about maybe seventy three hundred, I think, for the season. Um, they they didn't have very good scheduling. That was part of their problem. They they couldn't get a lot of Saturday games. I think there's only ten games on Saturday nights. Well, that's hockey night. 
Saturday night. Um, having games on a, a Tuesday or a Thursday is not going to help you too much. Back it goes. A pass off the skate. Back to the line. The right point. No late. Keeps it in. Along the boards is Don Lewis, and he finds an opening and shoots it down the ice. In 19 seconds, Schoenfeld will come back onto the ice. Now Powers leads the rush for Kansas City to the Buffalo line. In on the right wing. Goes to the corner. Back to the point. It goes. Winding up is Rhoda. Takes the shot over to Nole. Right point. Back to Rhoda. Rhoda. Top of the circle. Shoots. Dozier, left pad, save, and the puck rebounds into the corner, and Don Luce goes after it. Down the left side, stepping onto the ice with Sean Feld. He's got a breakaway, but no, it's offside at the Kansas City blue line. And Sean Feld had stepped onto the ice. One minute, 11 seconds. Remaining in the penalty to carry air. And I don't know, it certainly didn't look like an offside call from our vantage point, but... Jim Schoenfeld is now discussing the play with Gerard Gauthier. One eleven to serve in the slashing penalty to Larry Carrier. Then Buffalo will return to full strength. They lead by 5-1 over Kansas City. They have not announced the crowd here tonight, but apparently it's uh, well over the 5,000 mark. Under the 10,000 mark, but over the five. And it is rather difficult to uh, estimate just exactly how many are here because it does seat a total of 16,000 fans and they're spread all over. If you'll wait a moment, I'll count them. <laughs> so when, when games are on Saturdays, they drew fairly well. The other games were on um, weekdays and attendance was, was pretty lousy. Washington was a little bit better. They averaged about 10,000 per game, which was um, not not great. It was still one of the lower marks in the league, but um, it was enough to, to get them by and to, um, to uh, you know, the, the financial um, losses weren't too bad. But the, the ownership situation in both cities was a big factor. Abe Pollen in Washington um, was the majority owner. So he had more money and uh, he could afford to, to, to lose a bit here and there and to pump more money into the franchise if he needed to. Um, like you're saying, he also was uh, uh, an owner of the uh, the Washington Bullets at the time, and uh, no, the, the Cap Center was doing very well. Um, but on the Kansas City side, it was a very uh, th- there was no majority owner in in Kansas City. Yeah, talk about that for a second because it was yeah it was almost like the Detroit Wheels of the World Football League in terms of yeah. how many and owners there were. There, there was I think there was about twenty or twenty one owners or something, and, and no one owned more than twenty percent of the team. So. You know, you, th- you think about it. If if you're one of these one percent or two percent owners, you you put in a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars or something. You're a small business owner in Kansas City, and at the end of the season, uh, you find out the team's lost a couple million dollars. Attendance wasn't as good as they thought. Now they're coming to see you for more money because, well, you know, we're we're having a hard time paying our players. Uh, you know, uh, we lost more than we thought. Can you contribute more money? Well, if Contributing $100,000 or $200,000 at the very beginning was a lot of money for you. Pumping in another $50,000 is going to be pretty tough. Um, and in in my experience reading about hockey and just even in today's um, uh, more modern day um, sports, sports uh, you don't see too often teams that have you know, 20 different owners doing particularly well financially. Uh, teams that do well have a, a major central owner that has lots of money. So if they lose any 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 money, they can usually weather a storm for uh, a couple of years, maybe even a decade. Um, you know, you look at a team like Oakland that had Charlie Finley. He had some money to be able to get the team by for a few years. But in Kansas City, 
no one had uh, any real major financial resources. So when when they started going into the red in the first season and going to the red even worse in the second season, there was just no one there to be able to pump more money into the franchise. And you wonder how a team could only last two years before failing. Um, like that, I think explains a lot uh, because there were, there were other teams that weren't doing so well financially, but lasted much longer because they had better ownership. Um, and it, um, you know, at the, at the time, a lot of people thought that owning a sports team was a license to print money. They, 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 they want, they like, they like the excitement of joining a league and uh, being a sports owner, but then they, they quickly realize that, oh yeah, if your team doesn't get 15,000 fans a game, you're probably paying more money. So if you don't have money to, um, to put back into the franchise in the event that things go south, you're going to be in some major trouble. And um, you saw that a lot in the, uh, with some NHL teams in the WHA, especially the World Football League that didn't have stable ownership. It didn't take long for those franchises to fold. There was, um, they just didn't have the, the financial backing to really survive um, uh, any kind of financial hardship. Yeah, the NBA, too, was in an interesting state at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Franchises that uh, were on the, shall we say, opposite side of the scheduling ledger. Um, it would seem like Poland and, and the Capitals and the, the Bullets were a little bit more coordinated than, say, the uh, the Kings on the basketball side were. Because I think at that time, mm-hmm. I think 74, 75, they were still known as the Kansas City Omaha Kings. <laughs> uh, and they were splitting games that way. And then they, I guess, centered into the the um into Kemper Arena that following second season of, of the um scouts existence, which couldn't have helped their case any further. And by the way, a reminder, and you you sort of encapsulate this for a number of pages in the book too, um, the scouts kind of got off to a not a great start from a fan generated uh excitement perspective uh in their first season because they had to go on the road for a number of games to start their their first ever season. <laughs> Because the arena wasn't finished by the time they were ready to go hit the ice. Yeah, they had all sorts of arena problems. There was a construction strike that delayed everything. So they didn't play their first home game uh, until November. That's not a very good sign when you're, when you're starting a brand new franchise. And for the first month of the season, your team hasn't played one game in front of any fans. Uh, and it also didn't help much that on this eight-game road trip to start the season, they went 0-7-1. and well, you're coming back for your uh, your first game of the season at home, and there's not even a one a one in the W column yet. Um, but that said, they 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 had a good first game. They they drew about fourteen thousand against Chicago for the uh, the home opener. Um, but again, it wasn't a sellout. It was you know fourteen thousand. If they'd managed that throughout the year, it would have been great. But the second game, they drew about half of that. And that's kind of the level it stayed at. About you know six to seven thousand was the norm for most of the year. They had the occasional game over ten thousand, but not too many. Um, you know, if they'd drawn ten or eleven thousand throughout the season, they probably would have been okay. They would have lost a few few bucks, but they would have been probably okay. But the the the, the start of the season was uh, couldn't have gone any worse. Um, uh, it it, uh, it really couldn't have. Well, tell me about the 75-76 season for both of these teams, because that's the genesis of how mm-hmm. this Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup in Japan exhibition series came about. Um, the reality, So maybe a little bit about sort of how this idea came about in the first place to do this exhibition, and then perhaps uh, layer in there why these two teams in particular, these two, let's call them what they were, woeful teams – 
Hmm. made obvious sense for that, even though it would seem like a head scratcher to send those two worst teams in the NHL as the ambassador (laughs) of the sport to a brand new country that was just kind of trying to figure out what pro hockey was about. Yeah, so it, it, it's it's always the strangest thing, and, and you see it throughout throughout articles from the time they're wondering like, why are they sending the two worst teams to Japan to to promote the NHL and to uh, um, it it made, it made no sense. Like, why wouldn't you send the Montreal Canadiens or the Philadelphia Flyers, who are the the, the big teams of the day, uh, or the Boston Bruins? Uh, they, they might not have been Stanley Cup champs, but this is a a, a a big name. Or even the New York Rangers, they weren't great, but it's New York City. You know, that's that's a big name. Why send Kansas City and Washington made almost no sense. Um, but in, in a way, it did make sense because – so um, in, in my research, the the earliest uh, mention I found of the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup, or they also call it the NHL Japan Series, which is – so you, you kind of see the two a little bit uh, mentioned in, in newspapers. Um, the earliest mention I think was in March that I saw it. So – you're thinking this is March is about a, a, maybe a month, month and a half left in the season. Um, so you're trying to pick two teams to go to, for this, um, this exhibition series. And it, the, the reason for this exhibition series is, is not terribly clear. Even in the, in the, the, the program, um, one of the game programs I I've seen, uh, it was basically, I think just to promote the American bicentennial in 76. Um, it was all, it was also Coca-Cola's 90th uh, anniversary, I think, or it was Coca-Cola Japan's anniversary. So they were just trying to do something, um, just a little celebration. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you gotta remember that, uh, in Tokyo it was, um, uh, was a, quite an American influence in, in, in Tokyo at the time. So, um, hockey wasn't totally foreign to, uh, to, to, to this crowd. Um, but that was some of the reasons why they wanted to send, teams over and you gotta remember also in the, in the mid 70s this is a time when um other leagues like the aba and the nba i think they did some exhibition series in japan as well uh playing against each other um baseball uh, major league baseball had sent some teams over for some exhibition games you have the world hockey association and the nhl that just came off their two summit series in seven, 72 and 74 uh the world hockey associations had been starting to send teams over to europe to compete in the uh, Izvestia Cup. I'm not sure if that might be the year after, uh, but they were sending teams over to do their uh, their training camps. So hockey was starting to branch out a little bit. So that might be one of the reasons why they went to Japan as well is to you know, since everyone else is kind of expanding and just at least putting feelers out in different countries around the world, why not the NHL do the same thing? Um, not that the NHL was thinking of putting any teams in Japan. I, I would seriously doubt that. If if they were going to expand out of North America, they would go to Europe first. Um, and especially with the state of the NHL at the time, they probably weren't really in a rush to expand again anyway. But the, that's the reasons I found for the the, um, the 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 NHL Japan series was basically to pro. Uh, it was a goodwill series, um, the American bicentennial, and it was also um, an anniversary for Coca Cola. Um, and the Coca Cola was the main sponsor of the of the the series, obviously. So why did they pick the the scouts and the Capitals to go there? The reason that I found the most, um, and some were doubting it at the time uh, in different newspapers, but it, may, it makes sense to me that they picked the two worst teams because they wanted to make sure that if you're, if you're going to start printing out memorabilia, like banners and uh, pennants and T-shirts and uh, game programs, 
you don't want to have you don't want to start printing those out, and all of a sudden you have the Kansas City Scouts going a, a six or seven game win streak. All of a sudden they play, they play themselves back into a playoff position, and throws everything off. Washington was pretty much guaranteed to be out, but Kansas City during that second season, a lot of people don't realize that by about the midway point in the season, um, they were 11, 21, and four, which is not a great record, but they were in the incredibly weak Smythe division. The Smythe division, um, if you take Chicago out of the mix and maybe Vancouver, it wasn't all that great. So Kansas City was still in a playoff By the way, Chicago position. and Vancouver were basically barely 500 teams at that point. So oh, yeah. The Smythe division was incredibly weak throughout the rest of the decade, pretty much. Um, and um, what we can maybe get into it later on, when, when the scouts end up going to Colorado, they made the playoffs one year with 59 points just because they were, they were they finished second in that division with 59 points. So th- this division was incredibly weak. Um, and so even though the scouts were 10 games under 500, they still had a chance of making the playoffs. They were one point out of the playoffs at this point. So they, they, no one could really predict who was going to be the two worst teams in the league. You could say, well, maybe California would be bad, but the seals weren't far out of the playoffs either at that point. Like if they'd won five, six in a row, they could have made the playoffs. And then all the promotion that had been, plan for Japan would have gone out the window. So um, basically Washington was a guarantee, but there was who their point was going to be was not really guaranteed until later in the season. And then it was around this point when the, the scouts were one point out of the playoffs that the, the, and the capitals were, I think they were something that they were at one point, they were three and 28 and five. Like they were off to a worse start in their first season. Um, but it was around this time that the capitals started to win a few more games and the scouts started to lose a few more games. And they basically went in opposite directions at this point. And the scouts, if you can believe this, and this is almost impossible when you think of, of, of hockey um, in 2022, the scouts won just one of their last 44 games. And they ended the season on, I kid you not, a 27 game winless streak. So that pretty much killed their playoff chances. After they, um, you know, after the out of those forty four games, after they ten of those or fifteen of those games had gone by and they hadn't won anything, they were pretty much done. And you could start the promotional process at this point. Uh, but in January, even early February, there was no guarantee that the scouts were going to be bad enough to be invited to this um, series. Um, but Washington was the only the team was guaranteed. Kind of knew though already. Oh yeah, they, 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 they there was no news that they were going to be going to Japan. Like they didn't find out until March. Uh, like the scouts, this this was not really planned until about March. Um, that this one the teams found out. But the Capitals for sure. Like they were miles out of the, their own division, even behind Detroit, which had an awful team in uh, the mid seventies. Washington was still a good twenty or thirty points behind them, and I think Detroit wasn't even in a playoff spot. I think it was the first three teams that would make the playoffs in those days. So Washington was out of the playoffs by. Probably November, I would say, uh, that year. Uh, but Kansas City was puttering along. They were picking up wins here and there. L- like the first season, they were fairly competitive. They played a lot of the top teams very, very close. Like they beat Montreal at one point. They beat Boston at one point uh, in their first two seasons. Uh, they tied Philadelphia, I think. Uh, like they-, they could surprise a few people once in a while. But it was that losing streak in the second half of the season that killed their their chances. All right, what's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. 
Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League. How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. Um, and by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. Tell me how the sports writers uh, viewed uh, these two teams being chosen as, shall we say, ambassadors of the sport to a foreign country. It, it was, oh, they were they were very very skeptical. They, they they just could not understand how the NHL would pick the two worst teams to go overseas. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head some of the quotes. I don't know if you have the the, the quotes with you, but I'll give you one. I thought um, it was terrific. It was uh, on uh, page one hundred and seventy seven. As a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Jim Taylor, the Vancouver Sun, was particularly <laughs> nasty towards the Capitals and Scouts in his sports column. Quote, the last time the U.S. shipped two bombs to Japan, it ended in war. This time it could start one. <laughs> That's, I was pretty much the sentiment uh, when people were finding out about this quirky little tournament uh, or series to go on Japan. It's like, like, why are they sending these two teams over? It makes absolutely no sense. But... Yeah, you have to remember also, and this is what the, the players had reminded me a couple of times, is that even the worst teams in professional hockey in 1976 were leaps and bounds better than any hockey that had ever been seen in Japan, except maybe aside from the, the 72 Olympics. Um, it didn't really matter who they sent. These guys were going to be 
far and away the best players that Japan had ever seen. So, um, and the Japanese were incredibly impressed by the players. Like they, they were, these, these were, these guys were big. They could, they could shoot the puck really hard. They would hit, they would fight. Um, like they were, they had never seen anything like these guys before. And they were the worst teams in the league. If you sent Montreal, Philadelphia, they would, their heads would have exploded, I think. Um, but, uh, Washington, Kansas City, they were more than happy to see them, um, play in Japan because they were, they might've been bad in the NHL. Uh, but in Japan, these guys were as good as they got. Uh, um, they were leaps and bounds better than anything they ever seen in Japan. Well, so tell me about the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the lead up and the cup, the, the game itself. It's a, it's, um, it's a four game exhibition. And, and, um, it, by all accounts that, uh, that you've sort of, uh, circled around in this book, it seemed like this was, um, uh, some hell of a concessionary, uh, or, um, consolation prize for these uh for these players on these two worst teams i mean they, they sound like they were treated like royalty and had a first class experience at least in the travel and the and the upkeep and all that kind of stuff how about how about the play too and how were they received by the fans yeah i can tell you for a fact the players that i interviewed absolutely adored their trip like this this was a once in a lifetime uh, trip for the for these guys like most of them had never been to japan before certainly never played hockey in japan um some have played in europe maybe like i know um some were on the the 72 olympic i think craig patrick was on the 72 olympic team um if i'm i could be i could be wrong but uh um some played in in japan maybe for the olympics uh or um in europe in the olympics but uh, most had never really been very far out of north america and um Coca-Cola Japan and uh, a couple of the other sponsors, they really went out of their way to make the players feel welcome. They had, there was always these lavish banquets that were out for them. When the players landed in, um, uh, they landed in Sapporo, I think it was uh, for the first uh, game, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it said something on the, um, at the, at the airport said, welcome um, sweet ladies and, and great fighters or something like that, or great warriors or something like that. Like the, 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 the Japanese uh, had, um, seeing these guys coming in as just being these incredibly um, huge and tough athletes uh, coming from uh, halfway around the world. And um, so players, they were given um, a per diem of, of $45 a day. Their, all their expenses were paid. Um, they got $1,250 each to just to, uh, to compete in these four games. Uh, they stayed at the new uh, Otani hotel in Tokyo when they, when the series moved over there. Um, and it was a, a very lavish and plush hotel. Uh, the, the hotel actually was one of the players that told me it was actually the exterior was the, the shot they used for uh, Osato chemicals in the James Bond movie. You only live twice. So it, uh, the exterior of the, if you see in that movie, you see the hotel that the player stayed at and they said it was just beautiful. Um, they were, uh, tree like royalty and the reporters and the fans were incredibly enthralled by these guys. They couldn't get over the fact that they, 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 they had these, their teeth were all missing. Uh, they couldn't get over the fact that they would be fighting on the ice with each other. It, it was quite the show for, um, for, uh, for Japan because it, it was definitely not the same style of hockey that they were used to uh, seeing if they'd even seen it at all. in in some cases um, they were treated beautifully and the players uh, when they came back, they had nothing but fond memories. They um, they also had a five day um, trip to uh, Hawaii on the way back from Japan as well. So, for some of the the players on opposing teams in the NHL, 
this is um, a player by the name of Jack Lynch was telling me about this. He said some of the players on the opposite on the opposing teams at the end of the season were disappointed that they were going to the playoffs and the Capitals were going to Japan for this, this trip. They were uh, almost disappointed that they were going to be competing for the Stanley cup, but the Capitals were going to be going for a, a beautiful trip to Japan. Uh, and, and it really was a wonderful trip. They, uh, they, they had um, a great time. Why, why do you think Japan? Um, I, you do speculate a, a couple of different sort of theories. One, which uh, was, Possibly the World Hockey Association, given the name "World" in their mm-hmm. in their in their um, uh, in their uh, title, that uh, that they would be flexing their muscles to kind of do some exhibition stuff and/or literal expansion over time. Um, I, I'm just curious, and, and why Japan? Uh, why not say another, say European country or even the Soviet Union, which you know certainly in '74 and '72, right with the uh, the Summit Series. Um, was certainly a thing. Yeah, there, there was certainly talk at the time that the World Hockey Association, their, their ultimate plan was to eventually expand to Europe, to have a European division. Uh, it never it never happened because I don't think they were financially stable enough to really uh, to go that way, but that was the plan. Uh, and the NHL, they could have possibly been a little bit afraid of the WHA kind of going that direction. So... That might have been one of the reasons why the NHL went to Japan. My understanding from what I read is more, I think the it was more Coca-Cola had approached the NHL about organizing this series. So I think it was more a Coca-Cola initiative than than anything else. And the NHL just simply accepted it. They thought this would be, um, you know, a, a nice um, way to promote the game uh, around the world. But uh, uh, I, I don't think the NHL really had any intention of ever – um, expanding to Japan. I don't think the World Hockey Association did either. Although they they were talking about Europe, uh, I, I I would think that if they were to expand out of North America, Europe would have been the first place they would have gone because uh, they, they certainly did have um, uh, a lot of ties to Finland and uh, the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at the time and uh, um, the Soviet Union as well. Um, they had teams come over to the WHA and play some regular season and exhibition games. So, uh, but uh, Japan, I don't think it was on the radar. I think it was more Coca-Cola was, um, they, they invited the NHL to send teams over and then that just kind of got the ball rolling afterwards. But it wasn't, it wasn't a slam dunk. There was, there was definitely some hesitation on the NHL's part to send players over to, uh, to Japan. Uh, there was a lot of kinks to work out, but uh, eventually uh, they came to an agreement um, to, uh, to send um, players over. The NHL did have some hesitation um, because they had done a sort of barnstorming tour back in the 50s. I want to say like 1958 or 59 when they sent the, the Blackhawks and the New York Rangers to Europe and they played a 20 or 23 game exhibition tour. Uh, and it, it didn't work out so well um, for the NHL. They, they lost some money. Um, there was some some financial problems. So I think the, the NHL was kind of hesitating to do this sort of thing all over again, send actual club teams to uh, to um, uh, across the world to compete. So there, there was that hesitation also that was uh, – I'd read that in the newspapers as well. But eventually uh, they were convinced to uh, uh, to send teams over. And, and again, the fact that Coca-Cola – 
put together about, I think it was $400,000. They pooled together their, their bottling franchises in Japan. They put some money together. So it's not like the NHL was paying for very much. I, I, that's not my understanding. I think Coca-Cola paid a, a, a great deal, if not the entire bill. Uh, so the NHL didn't have much to lose, really, by sending their teams over. It was, you know, it was nice to be invited. So they, they sent a couple of teams over. Um, the players were all in agreement. They, they liked the idea of going over. Um, certainly not like today where sending a team o- couple teams over to uh, any other country there'd be an awful lot to negotiate uh, at that time the negotiations seemed like they were fairly easy to uh, to, to take place and um, the players the NHL Players Association everyone agreed pretty quickly and, and that's how it happened how did the um, how did the fans uh, in Japan take to uh, these games and I, I my suspicion and, and from what you wrote seems like it was sort of taken more as a uh, uh, a spectacle more than it was competition or, or uh, how do they go over with the fans that, you know, kind of didn't necessarily appreciate or understand the top tier pro version of the game? Because the sports writers who covered it from the States kind of called it mediocre in terms of play. Uh, yeah, the first, the first game was a bit mediocre from what I read in the papers. Uh, the, the players seemed like they were a bit jet lagged and they were a little bit tired. Um, like it was, it was, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a fairly decent exhibition, but it was, uh, compared to the other three games, it seems game one was a bit of a letdown. Uh, and the, the, the fans were led to believe if, if so if you look at the, um, uh, and you can see it in the book. There was uh, one of the players I, I talked to. His name is Ron Lalonde, uh, and he lives not far from uh, from where I do. He lives in, um, um, in southern Ontario. Uh, and he, he'd sent me, uh, for my original article in 2013, he sent me, um, I think it was uh, a translation of the game program. Because he sent me the game program later on uh, in last year. Uh, and um, the, he sent me the translated, I think it was a translated version. And you can see how the Japanese were promoting the game and they were promoting it basically as being like rollerball on ice was that there was gonna be lots of kicking and punching and violence. And, uh, and, and th- th- that certainly was true in the NHL of this mid seventies. Like it's, it was, it was brutal at times. Um, so when game one happened and there, there wasn't a fight, uh, there wasn't any high sticking really. There wasn't any violence. The, the fans were a little bit disappointed um, that, um, you know, that the, the they were expecting a bit of blood and it, it wasn't there in game one that came a bit later in, in the, uh, the later games. Um, but there, there was some disappointment from uh, the, the fans that um, uh, there wasn't anything more. Um, I, there, there was even one report, I think it was a Washington post article that said that one of the TV commentators in Japan, uh, and this is game one in Sapporo, uh, one of the TV commentators had to actually explain to viewers why no one had been badly injured yet. <laughs> So this was – they were expecting violence and uh, this is the reputation hockey had had at the, at the time. Um, so it was a, a bit of a disappointment for the uh, the fans. But uh, luckily in the games that followed, the excitement level went up a little bit afterwards. But the the, uh, the, the crowd was very quiet. There was um, uh, the, someone – I think it was Tommy McVie, the um, Washington coach. I believe he compared the crowd to being like a morgue. Uh, and another player compared to being playing in front of like 5,000 mannequins. It was very, very quiet. Um, if the puck would hit the boards, it would just echo because there was just no, uh, there was no crowd noise whatsoever. So it was, it was very different from, um, the, the playing in the, in the NHL and, uh, the, 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 the fans were very quiet. So they didn't yell at the players. There was no obscenities that were being yelled at the players. And, uh, no, these were guys that had 
played in Philadelphia and uh, these these places where in New York City where the fans would get right on you and start making derogatory comments about your mother and like that didn't happen in Japan it was it was very very different uh, for the players um, it was a bit jarring I think for the players as well to be in such a quiet atmosphere. Well, it was re- respectful too, which is sort of part of the yeah at that time too. Um, how did the games play out? Who won? So uh, game one, uh, Washington uh, won that game. Uh, they won it five to two, and uh, the, the players at the end of the game took home a string of pearls. So there was there was gifts for the the, uh, the winners after every game. So they got a string of pearls. Uh, game two is also in Sapporo. That was it was a much more spirited effort. Uh, the Capitals won that one six to two, and they took home some cassette tape recorders for their uh, for their efforts. Um, and in, in, ga- in game two, it was more of an NHL game that you saw. There was uh, um, there was uh, there was a couple of fights, and um, the, the the fans were a little bit. It's a bit strange that in, in game two, the the fans were almost a little bit taken aback by the fights at this point. So they, they were promised blood, they were promised violence, they seemed disappointed. And when they finally got it in game two, th- some of the fans would giggle, according to uh, Ron Lalone. He was saying they would kind of giggle. Uh, it would be like um, others were kind of like just shocked to see these Canadian, these big Canadians uh, rolling around the ice and beating each other up. Um, they were, um, uh, they also couldn't understand how the players could, you know, beat each other up on the ice. And then off the ice, they could fraternize with each other and they were friends. They, they just couldn't understand, like, how could you beat someone up? And then the next day you're friends again. It's like, well, uh, they, uh, it, it's almost like, um, you know, two UFC fighters, they, they might hate each other in the ring, but when the fight's over, you can kind of go for a beer afterwards. And that's kind of how the, the Capels and Scouts were. They, they didn't hate each other, uh, but the fans couldn't seem to understand that. They were shocked at how they could beat the crap out of each other and then uh, be friends afterwards. So the, the first two games in Sapporo um, went, went pretty well. And um, uh, Washington went to they, they went to um, Tokyo with a 2-0 series lead. Uh, game three was in uh, the National Yoyogi Stadium. Um, and... This is where a lot of the stories from the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup uh, come from. Is the the playing conditions in in Tokyo? So the and I, I don't know how to even explain how. Maybe one of your viewers will send you an email or send me an email and explain how this could be possible. But the the games were played on an actual swimming pool. the The swimming pool that was used at the nineteen. Uh, um, one of the Olympic games, uh, I forget what year, but uh, 72, um, Sapporo, yeah, it, it was no, this is in Tokyo. Oh, at sorry, the, in Tokyo. Um, sorry. Oh, yeah, right. the back the Tokyo Olympics, oh, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, yeah, uh, the the summer, maybe it was in 68 or something like that, or 64. Okay, yeah. That's it, yeah, uh, and um, yeah, like they installed ice over the skating, over the the um, the swimming pool, and, and you can see in some of the pictures in the in the book, and I have others at home that were um, um, sent me from one of the players, and you can see diving boards over. Um, the Washington net. So there was, there was definitely a swimming pool there. How they put ice over a swimming pool, I have, I have no clue. And uh, I wasn't able to contact anyone from the NHL who could maybe give me an idea how this is possible. But, uh, but there was definitely ice over the swimming pool. And the, the boards, you, and you can see this in the book for sure, and the, the pictures, uh, the photos, by the way, are uh, tremendous. They were, they were given to me um, by um, a guy by the name of Robin Burns who played for Kansas City for both seasons. And he sent me this wonderful photo album full of these personal uh, Polaroids that um, his, his wife at the t- uh, had taken uh, and other players, um, their wives had taken. And you can see the boards, how rickety they are. Like they're, they're not smooth like you see today. They were, it was like, like plywood 
just like nailed together with fishing nets over it. So there was no glass or anything. It was just fishing nets over. So when the puck would be slapped into the fishing nets, it would boomerang right off and get hit the goalie right in the back of the head if he wasn't paying any attention. Um, the ice was very wet and slushy, uh, possibly because there was a swimming pool underneath. I'm not sure if that had something to do with it, but uh, the, the boards were not very solid. They were kind of held in place with these cement blocks. So the players had this understanding that uh, when they, they realized that these boards were not very solid, it's like, we're going to take it easy on each other. We're not going to slam each other into the boards. Like, we'll hit each other in, in on the ice, but let's not hit each other into the boards. There's a pretty good chance that if we hit each other, we're going to go over or through them. So it was, it was very, very dangerous. And you, you could imagine like there's, there's no way the NHL would ever um, send any of its players. Uh, if the conditions were like that, uh, it just goes show us how different 76 was that the NHL PA and, and the league would just say, Oh, sure. Go ahead. And uh, you know, just try and be careful out there. Like it, it was a bit dangerous. Um, it's, it's surprising that none of the players got hurt. Um, so th- there was a bit of an adventure in, in those games. Um, so in, in game three, uh, the, the, um, Washington won that one again. They, they won six to two, basically clinched the, the Coca-Cola cup at that point, um, winning the, um, the first three games, uh, in the fourth game was a, a the, um, there was a bit of a background story in, in this game in that it was, um, the, 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 I think the players in Kansas city had found out that the, the franchise was kind of on its last legs in, uh, in, in Kansas city. Uh, they'd fired or released, um, general manager Sid Abel and his assistant Baz Bastien. Um, they were, they were gone because the team had just run out of money, uh, had nothing to do with their, the job they had done. They just, there was just no money. Um, the scouts had, taken a $300,000 loan from the NHL. They couldn't pay that back. Um, so the, 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 the franchise was hemorrhaging money and they were letting people go left, right and center. Um, the players I think had gotten wind of that in Japan and they knew that there was a pretty good chance that this was the last game they were playing as the Kansas city scouts. They didn't know if the team was going to be contracted, if they were going to move. Um, the NHL at that time was not on solid ground. They'd had problems with California and with Pittsburgh. The NHL had no intention of supporting another franchise. Um, so there was, there was a chance they were going to contract the, the team and a lot of these guys were going to be out of a job. Um, so they, they knew that this was their last opportunity to really put out a, a great effort. Um, they all, you have to remember also that they hadn't won a game since about, I think, early February. Like the, that 27-game that winless streak I was telling you about, you add the three games in Tokyo, you're up to a 30-game winless streak now unofficially. Um, so they, they knew this was the last. If they want to put an end to this streak, this is this is the last opportunity to do it. So they they um, they put out a pretty great effort in the in the last game. It was also uh, defenseman Gary Bergman was at the end of his career. He said before the game to the players that he was retiring after this game. So they knew they they want to put out a really great effort for him to send him off. Uh, he had a, a great career. They want to send him off as a winner. Um, the players were motivated to end that that streak. Uh, there was a lot of reasons why the scouts uh, came out hard to play in game four and they ended up winning the the the, the fourth game um they ended up winning the lady, ladies wristwatches was the the gift and um even uh, uh, uh robin burns when i interviewed him he had said that uh the the scouts players had a little bit extra motivation in the last game because the uh their their wives and girlfriends were upset that the capitals wives and girlfriends were taking home all the prizes the can't say wives and girlfriends hadn't gotten anything they they, they lost on the string of pearls they lost on the cassette recorders game three was little geisha dolls that were given out they didn't get anything so uh th- there was a bit of extra pressure from the wives and girlfriends apparently to uh to, to win 
something, uh, and it was ladies' wristwatches, so um, they were um, hopefully a little bit happier that they, they won those. So uh, the Capitals won the Series 3-1 to one and took home the Coca-Cola Cup. All right, I guess the last sort of major question that uh, still uh, stands out, and obviously you, people need to buy the book to kind of get to the, the granular details, but uh, you do spend a little time talking about that actual cup, uh, what it was, what happened to it, and maybe where it is now and where, where mm-hmm. can people see it. Yeah, so this this was also um, um, something that fascinated me when I when I wrote my original article in 2013. So at this point, um, I'd seen a picture of the cup, but I had no idea where it was. And there, there's a guy who works for the Washington Capitals. He's a writer and he, and he does a podcast for the Washington Capitals. His name is Mike Vogel. And um, he'd, he'd done a little bit. I think he'd posted a picture of the Coca-Cola cup on the Internet that I'd seen. And I, I contacted him saying, like, oh, can I use this for my article? It'd be great to have a picture of this cup. I'd never seen it before. Most of the players that I talked to had no idea what happened to this thing. Like they, they, they weren't even sure they brought it back with them. Um, and uh, so it was kind of mysterious, like where did this thing end up? So when I finally saw a picture of it, I was, I was impressed. I was happy. It's like, okay, this thing actually does exist. But Mike had told me um, through email, he'd said that I, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. He wasn't even sure where it was. So it was presumed lost again. And um, so whenever I was writing the, the book, I decided to contact him again, see like, um, you know, did you get any news on the, on the cup? Have you found it? And he said, yes, they, they, they did find it. And it was in the office of the, um, uh, of the, the team's um, director of hockey operations, a guy by the name of Chris Wagner. Uh, and um, he said that he'd be able to, um, to put me through to, uh, to, to Chris and uh, to talk to him. And, and sure enough, the cup exists. And um, I was able to get some nice professional shots that the, the Capitals um, uh, photographer was able to take some good professional shots and, and you see one in the book uh, um, and it's uh, the, 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 the trophy is nothing terribly memorable. It's not the Stanley Cup by any means. It's, it's, it looks like a peewee trophy. Like it's made of brass with a little um, a wooden base to it and it's a little plaque on the front that says Coca-Cola Ballers Cup winner, uh, you know, Washington Capitals 76. Um, it, it's, it's very, very basic. But the the story behind the cup, when, when I talked to Chris Wagner about this and he was able to explain to me the, the what happened between 76 and basically whenever he got it uh, in the uh, no, 2015 or so, uh, whenever he, he uh, came into possession of it, um, apparently, uh, so they, 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 they took the the, the, the team took the cup home and it must have been stashed away at Capitol Center for, uh, for, for many years. And it was just, you know, um, uh, stored away somewhere. He, he told me that it was found in one of the uh, one of the bars in the Cap Center concourse. And um, just before they were about to demolish Capitol Center, um, one of the, the director of operation, hockey operations at the time, he decided to just go back to Capitol Center just one last time to see like, oh, is there anything left to, to salvage before this place comes down um, in a barrage of dynamite and wrecking balls. And, uh, and so he found this cup at one, in one of the bars at the, the concourse. So he took it back to um, the, uh, I'm not sure if it was the MCI center, if they'd moved in there yet, but uh, he took it back to uh, the, the, uh, the, the Capitals offices. Uh, I think they were in um, Arlington, Virginia at the time. Uh, that's where they are now. And uh, he brought this trophy back and uh, everyone kind of looks at it. It's like, what is this Coca-Cola bottler's cup? Like no one had any, no one had any recollection of what this thing was uh, at all. So they just kind of said, okay, well, it's a not interesting little artifact. Like we'll keep it. And they would, um, they would use it as their, uh, their, their bubble hockey 
championship every year, like at their Christmas party or whatever, they would have a, a bubble hockey tournament with the employees and the winner would, would get the Coca-Cola cup and they just kind of scotch tape their name on the front. And, uh, and then that would be it. And they, they, kind of take it out every year. But then when uh, when Chris Wagner took over as director of hockey operations, he thought like, no, this is maybe a bit disrespectful to the the, the, the cup. And uh, he did a little bit of research on to see what it was and he found out about it. Uh, he decided to keep it and to uh, to preserve it. And he, he has it in his office to this day. Uh, it's not visible to the public. Um, and, and I asked him about that. I said, uh, you know, uh, would it be would it be something would you um, want to show it off to the, the public? And the reason why it was never really uh, put out there is because, you know, if you're an NHL team, your, your ultimate goal is the Stanley Cup. And, you know, showing this little artifact almost, um, it, it's, it's not the Stanley Cup, right? So that, that, like, they'll, they'll, they'll put that out there. Uh, but the Coca-Cola Cup is, is still a minor artifact in the team. But he, he did talk about how they could maybe someday um, – bring it out so people could see it. So it's, it's something that I'm hoping one day they will bring it out and, and show it off to uh, the fans. Cause it's, it's a, it's a very interesting little artifact. Uh, it, it's, it's not something that's worth very much, I don't think, but it's, um, it's, it's an interesting little trophy uh, with an interesting story behind it, that it came this close to being uh, destroyed um, when uh, the Capitol center came down. Um, like it, it's, it's, it's um, they're pretty lucky that it still exists. Yeah, I mean, look, it's also it was their first ever trophy, right? I mean, you know, oh, you yeah. know Stanley Cup and stuff, and you know, you take a, a hint from soccer, right? Where there are tons of cups that happen, you know, mid-season, post-season, uh, you know, preseason, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it's hardware, right? They call it hardware in, in the European game, and um, you know, it's uh, uh, it's it's sad though that it sits in in somebody's office, right? It, it could easily be somewhat of a fixture somewhere, reverentially. In the stadium somewhere, just as a, you know, as a, as a hearkening back, if you will. Um, and you can have some some comic uh, uh, relief uh, memories or perhaps uh, attached to it. I, what I'm fascinated by, though, too, uh, and, and you sort of laid it out there, too, and, and um, is that indeed that final game was uh, the last uh, ever game played by the Kansas City Scouts, at least as they were known to that. Uh, before they moved to Colorado, I I don't even think that the players knew at that time. By the time they were on their way to Hawaii on their journey back to the United States, that um, they would even have a franchise by the time they landed back in the states. That it would indeed be uh, purchased and moved uh, to Denver. Um, I'm sure uh, a bunch of those players, as you alluded to before, pretty much thought that that was it. And and who knows what awaited them when they came back to the United States? That franchise be you know uh, be damned or otherwise. Yeah, like I was mentioning before, like there was there was as good a chance that franchise was going to be contracted than be moved. Um, the, the NHL didn't really want to contract a franchise. It's it's kind of an embarrassment to do that, and that's something the World Hockey Association was doing. Like they were franchises were just folding up in mid season, and the NHL wanted to make themselves seem like they were they were still the the senior league. They were the more successful league. To fold a fr- even move a franchise was really not what they wanted to do, and they hadn't moved a franchise since World War II. Um, but they they really didn't have a choice. Uh, the, the, the 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 scouts and the and the California Seals were both at the same time on their last legs. Um, they both ended up moving, but there was rumors. Kansas City's case, especially, there were definitely rumors that they were going to contract that team. But there were there were rumors they were going to move them to Toronto, um, have a second team just outside of Toronto. 
um, where Bobby Orr was going to be part, a part owner. That never happened. Um, and um, they uh, eventually they were sold uh, to to um, uh, uh, Jack Vickers in um, in uh, in Denver, uh, and they uh, they became the Colorado Rockies, and they stayed there for about six years. Uh, but the other yeah, players had no idea when they were coming back, what they were coming home to, if there was even going to be a franchise, um, were they going to be any, – any of the franchise did move to Colorado uh, or not, were they going to be staying together? There was a good chance that the new owners were going to come in, a uh, new general manager was going to go a different direction, a brand new coach was going to be coming in too. Uh, because Eddie Bush, the coach they had in Kansas City, was just kind of a temporary uh, coach finish off the season. Um, and yeah, they, they had no idea what was going to come around the corner. And the Capitals uh, soldiered on, and, and they finally uh, got out of the basement. I think, geez, by eighty two, eighty three, they finally had gotten into the into the playoffs themselves. But there was probably less doubt or or, or worry that um, that A. Pollen and, and friends were going to move that franchise like Kansas City was. Yeah, they were they were a bit more solid. Although they did have some financial problems because their attendance was kind of hovering around ten thousand for most of their first seven or eight years uh and they kind of crept over like 11 or 12 maybe but uh they were very close to moving as well in uh 82 or 83 i think it was they had to have a save the caps uh, rally on uh, a telethon on tv i think it was uh to just get the people interested in the team and and uh, bring in some money because they weren't doing so well either um and you gotta remember by that point i don't i don't think they even made the playoffs once uh if it, um, I, the first time they made the playoffs was 83 i think it was right. so they went eight years without sniffing the playoffs they, they came close a few times but they weren't great and um same with kansas city and colorado they made the playoffs once in 78 and that was a fluke because their, their division was so weak um it, it tells you something about how those two teams how they were the foundation was so awful at the very beginning it in the their, their first eight seasons combined they made one two game playoff appearance and that's it uh it, it took them a long time to find their footing um and uh, financially as well like they they it took them years to gain solid financing um and to it, it was really until like once they did that save the caps rally the team seemed to kind of turn a corner they made um a, a good trade to bring in Rod Langway and uh, Brian Engblom um, and Craig Lachlan to um, Washington. Uh, that was a trade that transformed the franchise. They became a, a, a defensive juggernaut um, with, with those guys. And all of a sudden they started winning games and then attendance started to go up and they were much more solid, but they, they were very lucky. They had a, an owner that had some fairly deep pockets to keep that franchise afloat for as long as it did. But by after eight years, um, even a Poland's um, pockets were starting to, you know, he was starting to run out of some money at this point. Uh, and uh, they, they, they managed to survive and, and he, and he kept um, owning the team for a few more years after that, but they were dangerously close to, uh, to folding uh, uh, once again. All right. A couple of wrap up questions. Number one, why do you think the NHL did not go back to Japan or maybe do some similar uh, goodwill tours uh, in the years that followed? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I asked that to a couple of players as well uh, because the 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 NHL Japan series was successful by, by um, I don't think it turned a huge profit. It turned a bit of a profit, but not a it wasn't overwhelming success. Uh, but they, they, it made money. It didn't lose any um, for sure. And um, I remember reading it might have been the hockey news um, uh, like in, in May of '76 or something that there was a rumor that uh, the they were going to send the LA Kings and the California Seals to Japan to do another series, another Coca-Cola Bottler's Cup. 
Um, and um, it, it, it may have happened. Like It's hard to say, but you got to remember that the, the seals at this point were transitioned from Cal- from Oakland to Cleveland. So that might have had part that might have been one of the reasons why they never did the series again in that one of the two teams uh, all of a sudden, you know, they they were they had problems of their own. Um, that, but why it never happened again afterwards? I never found out why. Um, the The only thing I can think of is uh, I talked to Bernie Wolf, who was the the goaltender in Washington the the, the second season, and uh, and he's in finance now in in Washington. Uh, he's been doing that for for probably about forty years now, I think. Uh, and he had said, you know, if it's all about money, if if the NHL could have found a way to make money out of it, they would have done it. Um, so maybe that was part of it that there just wasn't, it wasn't worth doing it again because there wasn't enough money to be made from it. Uh, so in, in, in that, that's the reason he believes that the, um, they didn't send the teams back again, uh, is that it, it, it boils down to money and the, uh, while the, the series in the first series, uh, the 76 series did fairly well, it, uh, it, no, they didn't lose any money out of it, but they didn't really make a lot of money out of it either. And that might be one of the reasons why they were kind of hesitant to go back again. The NHL did end up going back again to Japan to do exhibition games, I think in 97 or 98, I think it was, because um, they had the, the Nagano games in, in 98. So the NHL did a couple of games. I think it was might have been Vancouver and Anaheim did a few exhibition games uh, before the season started. Um, but that's about as close as they ever really did to going back to Japan. Uh, they never did another Coca-Cola um, Bottlers Cup. So the, that, that one trophy is the, is they're the, the Washington Capitals are the one uh, winners of that trophy. There's no other team that can claim they've, uh, they've won it. They're the only ones. Yeah, in '97, that uh, that little mini series between the Ducks and the and the Canucks um, uh, in Japan, uh, almost if you sort of look at some of the history and some of the clips of that um, on NHL.com, there's almost sort of a, I don't know, I could call it whitewashing. It's almost like oh, they're coming to Japan for the first time, and that's not really <laughs> the case now, is it? Yeah, I, I was actually looking at some of those games as well um, while I was doing research for the book, and it's true. Like they mentioned nothing about uh, the, this uh, this this first trip to Japan uh, at all, um, not at all. It's um, yeah, it, it, it's and a series that's been it as a first regular season game, and I mean, yeah, but still, it's it's a complete ignorance of of what happened in '76. Yeah, it's it's too bad that uh, it's been kind of forgotten because it's uh, it's it's a quirky little moment in history. Uh, um, that the NHL is not really there, there. There are mentions of it on the internet, but not a lot. Um, I mean, there's not. There's it's only a four game series. There's not a lot to really talk about, I suppose. But uh, it's um, the NHL's never really gone out of its way to acknowledge that they they did this this series. Um, if you do ever see it in a book, it's usually just like a two line. Uh, paragraph just to say it. Oh yeah, there was a couple of games in Japan. Washington won, and that's about it. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's been kind of forgotten, and that's one of the reasons why I want to write it too. It's uh, I like to go back and look at these little forgotten corners of 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 sports, especially hockey, and uh, that's the reason why I wrote the book on the Seals. It was something different that hadn't been done, and. Talking about the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup was, again, it was something that hadn't really been done, at least not in great detail. 
Uh, and uh, I, I felt that even though there was a few articles that you can still find online, I, I felt there was you could go a little bit deeper on this. And there was uh, there was more of a story. Um, I felt I could talk to some of the players, and and and, and you're going to find in in the book also just like lots of little quirky stories um, of of the players, the little shenanigans they pulled uh, in Japan, uh, the, the fun that they had, and uh, uh, like stuff that ha- hasn't been really talked about before. Um, but it really should be. It's um, uh, I, I'd love there to be something in the Hockey Hall of Fame, a little, a very, very small little section, a plaque or something that just mentions. Cup? Why not happening. the cup itself? Yeah, like it's, uh, um, it's something I think some people would like to see. It's, um, it, it, it's, it, it's a conversation piece is what it is. Um, people, and, and you can see it on the actual cup itself. Maybe in the, in the book and the picture, you probably can't see it, but the, the pictures I've seen, I can, I can blow them up a little bit. And there's a little Coca-Cola Bottler's Cup logo the, the same one that's on the, the cover of the book, you can see it on the cup itself. Um, so if, if people are coming by and seeing this for the first time, they're going to want a Coca-Cola Baller's Cup. Like, what is this? And it, it's a conversation piece is what it is. And it's um, I'd love for it to be um, out there for people to, to see it and to uh, just ask a few questions about it uh, because it's, it's an interesting little story um, about a, a very, very brief moment in time uh, in the NHL, but it, but it says a lot about what was going on in the league and in professional hockey at the time, um, just by the fans' reaction in, in Japan, what their expectations were, and you know what was going on behind the scenes with these two expansion teams. The fact one was on the verge of folding or, or moving, um, it, it it shows a lot as to what was going on at that time in the in the NHL. Yeah, and if you're a Caps fan or a New Jersey Devils fan now, mm-hmm. um, these are part of their respective histories. All right, here's my last question. Was there, is there any video or audio footage or clips of, of these games? Were I'm assuming they were not broadcast back to the States, uh, or were they and they're just not found, or have they have been lost to time, or, or what? Yeah, I I wish I could have found some. I, I found even, even pictures, like, you'd be surprised to, um, like, there's nothing. There is absolutely nothing that exists on the internet as far as like my research um pictures you might find like the the logo of the coca-cola ballers cup on online to make a picture of, of a pennant but there's uh, there's no game footage as far as i know although i know the games were broadcast um they, certainly games in tokyo were broadcast uh, if not all four games uh so there might be footage available somewhere but it Again, it wasn't broadcast in the States or in Canada. So there might be something in Japan, but, uh, you know, I'd have to learn a, a completely new language to be able to find that out, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully there's something in Japan that still exists, but I've, I've never seen anything online. Uh, and even, like I said, photos of the series. Um, I was so, so lucky that Robin Burns had sent me this photo album with his uh, photos because... The, the day that arrived, I looked at it. I could not believe I was holding because I'd, I'd never seen anything from that series. Like to see those rickety boards and the fishing nets behind the, the, the nets and the diving boards over the the Washington goal. Like I'd, I'd never – I'd heard rumors about it. I'd never actually seen it. And uh, there's there's not much online uh, picture-wise. Um, uh, I'm hoping that some will come out. Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think the only things that really exist, the like pictures and um, uh, memorabilia, it's, it's with the players now and, and their families, those who've passed away. Um, I, I get the impression that uh, that's going to go with the players um, to their graves because there's uh, there's 
almost nothing that exists out there. Um, the the only place I could think of that might have it would be like Pacific Stars and Stripes, the um, the newspaper that was based out of Tokyo, I think, in, at the time. Uh, they'd covered the series in uh, the last two games especially, and there was a few photos there. I wasn't able to access their archives because of the pandemic. Um, they, they weren't able to get any of the photos, but they would probably have some. Uh, but they're, uh, they're locked away somewhere, and uh, I've never seen them, unfortunately. All right, we're going to put that out to our Japanese listeners, uh, and we do have a bunch, if you believe that, uh, to uh, help us find perhaps some originally sourced uh, newspaper, magazine, photographic, or video or audio coverage uh, of these games, known as the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup, or I guess the official one was the NHL Japan Series um, from 1976. Steve, this has been... um, a real hoot. And, uh, I, you know, this is exactly why we do this show, because there are so many little nooks and crannies and, and uh, unlit corners of uh, of the professional sports realm from the United States that, you know, uh, have been forgotten. And uh, you mentioned that uh, until your book, uh, there's only been a couple of sentences or two and maybe a uh, a picture sort of floating around on the internet or something, but it's really cool. And uh, the fact that you're able to tell the story about, you know, the, what led to this, as well as the actual running of this um, exhibition series as well. I mean, there are lots of pieces to this story, like the scouts last ever game and, you know, the expansion craziness and the NHL and the WHA is part of this. All of it is part of it. And uh, I, I think it can kudos for, for making a, a long, um, and an intriguing narrative around uh, what seemingly uh, at first blush is a um, uh, an asterisk in in hockey history, but it certainly is not. No, it's it's a it's a very for for me anyway. I mean, I'm I'm a bit weird in that sense that uh, you know these kinds of things interest me, but it's uh, uh, it's 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 something new. It's um, I I I personally get kind of tired of of reading the same stories over and over again, and and, and it's one of the reasons why I enjoy um, l- to listen to your podcast as well. Is that uh, you know hearing these stories about the World Football League and the the, the ABA and and that like I I didn't know much about these things uh, just a few years ago, and uh, but unearthing these little corners of sports history is it's so much more interesting than reading about the champions that, that you hear about all the time uh i've i've heard stories about bobby Orr and gila fleur over and over again like i want something new and uh i'm i'm always on the lookout for uh you know some sort of history on the los angeles kings or something like that which i don't think i've ever seen before but it, it's that kind of thing that um i find very fascinating um you know the, the usfl and and those kinds of things that uh, these are um tremendously interesting stories uh because they're they're so strange like the uh, it's hard to believe some of the things uh, that are in these these books and and articles uh that this actually existed and uh uh, i'm so glad that there are reporters and and writers and researchers who are bringing this up to the surface now because um there was a long time ago when that stuff just didn't exist it was always the same stories over and over again uh it's great that there's so many of these new uh, uh these new stories are coming out Uh, there is no end to our, our exploration to the depths of forgottenness in, in pro sports. And, you know, most people like to sort of package up uh, these stories and put them in a box and, and, and frankly, just conveniently forget them in the attic, in the basement, whatever. No, no, no. We like to find those boxes and those dark 
uh, musty places where they could blow the dust right off of those boxes and just break them wide open and hopefully nothing breaks uh, inside of them and, and see what was forgotten. And uh, this uh, episode uh, that we just delivered to you with our conversation with Steve is, is a great example of um, uh, the, uh, the, the ends of the earth that we go to uh, to explore those topics. Uh, again, the book you must get. It is called When the NHL Invaded Japan, the Washington Capitals, the Kansas City Scouts, and the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup. It is by our guest this week, Steve Currier. You know that by now. It is published by our pals at McFarland, and it is available for you now wherever fine books are found. You can get it in paperback or Kindle fashion. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to give us a little support, hell, we don't charge you for this show, at least not yet. Very few advertisements. We try to keep them to a minimum. Uh, we haven't asked you for Patreon just yet, although we are threatening to do so. So what better way? You're getting the show for free, for God's sakes. Why not? Buy the book through our website and give us a couple of shekels of referral love, why don't you? Go to uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 269, my goodness, with Steve Currier. And uh, you'll find a convenient link to Amazon uh, where you will get it either in digital form or, you know, the next day or maybe even uh, the same day if you've got Prime. Uh, and uh, we appreciate it. We'll get a couple of pennies, literally, nickels maybe. Uh, of referral love for, for you doing so. We'll also have a convenient link to uh, Steve's previous book that we talked about, geez, five years ago, back in our episode number 37, back in uh, it was November of 2017, I think it was. That was his great book, his huge tome on the history of the California Golden Seals. That's published by the University of Nebraska Press. Get them both, why don't you? They make great gifts, a nice two-pack. And um, what else? You can find Steve's website, his Awesome, deep, and uh, detailed rich. GoldenSealsHockey.com. GoldenSealsHockey.com. Yes, it's about the Golden Seals pre predominantly or prominently, but it's also about all his other exploits and stuff too, including this fine work and, and topic that we uh, just got through today. Uh, thank you to Steve. Thank you to all for listening to this episode. Thank you, of course, to the good Dr. Jerry Payne for his knob twiddling this week as always and um more fun and excitement and intrigue coming at you next week lord knows what the topic is but um we'll do our best to make it interesting for sure thanks for listening until then please be safe and uh watch out for the sunburn and the, the heat and all that kind of stuff and uh just try to make it to next week so we can talk to you again bye mm -hmm.